Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a first check venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams and projects in New York City on day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. This season of Origins is sponsored by Silicon Valley Bank and Cooley LLP. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SVB services, visit svb.com. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the very beginning. They've helped us form both notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups that we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at CooleyGo.com. Paul Mace is the Director of Investments for Private Equity and Real Estate at the Tufts University Investment Office. He's responsible for evaluating private market managers and their investment strategies to include in the university's portfolio. He's been at Tufts for 14 years, and before that was an investment banker evaluating M&A and private equity transactions. Paul Mace, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. To start, just tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and, and your background. Sure. Happy to do so. Uh, so a little recovering uh, CPA and technology investment banker. I did that sort of post undergrad and then post business school. Those were kind of my kind of training grounds for what I'm doing now. Um, joined the Tufts investment office really at sort of the ground floor back in 2004. Uh, Sally Dungan, the CIO, uh, hired me to kind of help her out. You know, I got brought in at an at a analyst level or senior analyst level and kind of help her build up a private program in the endowment. At the time, she had started out, um, started the office in 03 and was, you know. And they of, didn't have an investment office. Did, for the no, uh, didn't have a professional office. Okay. Had a, It was kind of run through the um, Treasury Department. And, you know, I think there was one person that was kind of managing a lot of the operational right. side. Right. Um, and then also the board was kind of opining on some investments. So there definitely was an endowment and there were investments, but there wasn't a professional office. Yeah. And I say that's fairly typical. Usually once the endowment when I joined was about $700 million. I'd say that's a typical level where people start to think about, all right, should we really internalize this and kind of hire staff and make this a full-time function? You know, so back then, you know, we really were building out both a private asset, private equity and real assets portfolio from scratch. Um, we had- some, And it was just you and Sally. Just Sally and I, and then one other public markets person that okay. she had hired. Uh, but again, you know, right around the same time I was hired a couple months before. So we were really starting the office from a ground floor. And this is 2004. To that early 2004. How did you get that gig? Good question. How do you even know um, about it? You know, I think I found, I think it was some mutual connections and I, I had been doing the CFA on the side and wanted to kind of get into asset management. You know, I had been doing um, tech banking for a couple of years and I liked that. I thought it was interesting, but I ultimately wanted to kind of 
look at it from a longer term perspective and do do more of an investing, uh, have more of an investing role. Um, and I kind of just connected with Sally. I think she valued the fact that I had had this sort of CPA background, you know, had the crossover into kind of iBanking, understanding valuations and stuff like that. And then, you know, also I had been working at smaller places. So I wasn't afraid to kind of roll up my sleeves in a smaller kind of start, almost like a startup environment to kind of get things off the ground. So yeah, so, you know, fast forward, been there 15 years. I, you know, it's been a great learning experience and also just career development role for me. You know, I've kind of progressed through different stages. You know, Sally, I think is given me increasing responsibilities as I've been there. And, you know, fast forward to today, I'm sort of the director of investments that manages the private equity portfolio. And then I um, also manage the, the real assets portfolio. You know, I have some colleagues that I work with as well on both portfolios. And, you know, the endowment's grown from, you know, about 700 million to a little under 2 billion today. And, you know, the the private equity market has really, you know, evolved over the last 15 years as well. I mean, I think, you know, there's just the interest continues to, you know, increase more, more investors are allocating capital to private equity strategies broadly. It's gotten a lot more competitive for access. And, and yeah, I think you just have to be a little bit more creative about how you go about, you know, both building and maintaining a portfolio. So. I know this is a very broad question, so yeah. excuse me, but um, over the past 15 years, essentially professionalizing the Tufts endowment while you've been there, what have been the maybe like one or two major learnings or course corrections along the way? Yeah, I think there's a couple things. I mean, I think one of the one of the big things is, you know, private equity as an asset class, there's there's a real risk to kind of falling in love with diversification. Um, so you can over diversify your portfolio, in my view. I think you really want to be. Which would mean just. Just too, too many, many too many yeah. managers and, and kind of thinking that a lot of the sub strategies in private equity are not correlated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, OK, it seems like investing in an early stage venture company versus a later stage buyout. Oh, uh, those are totally different types of companies mm-hmm. and, and the returns are not really correlated. And to some degree, that's true. Um, but I, I would say there are a lot of common risk factors that impact, you know, asset returns broadly. And you got to be mindful of those. So I think I think early on, we probably put a few too many managers into the portfolio. I think we've gotten better at that over time. And, you, you know, you see that now in, in, the, in how mature the secondary markets have become. I think a lot of investors have kind of figured out that, okay, we need to basically be managing this more dynamically. So I think that's one thing. I think another thing is really being able to kind of, um, you know, develop relationships early. Like we talked about this before we sat down around, it's a relationship game long-term access is it's not really uncovering you know your best ideas it, it that's part of it but it's also mm-hmm. developing the relationships in a way where you're going to get access i think you know we've clearly you know gotten better at that as well but i you know there are certain situations where we can't scale the position in a good performing manager the way we right. want and i think a lot of people struggle with that as well so it's it really pays if you can uncover some people early become a you know a good um, backer of them. And then you kind of have a seat at the table to kind of grow that relationship over time. And just like, you know, just like VC investing in a company, you're most loyal to your early, you know, right. you know early investors. Yeah. So are there relationships that have you have had that have remained consistent over the last 15 years? Yeah, I think that's, that's a goal when we underwrite new relationships is like, okay, do we see multi, 
you know, fun potential here. And there's, you know, several things that go into that. One is, all right, what's the team look like? Is this, where are they in their careers? Are they kind of, you know, are they in this for several funds? Are they, are they building a culture and a firm that's going to last for a longer period of time? I think that would be our preference is to find a subset of those. Now that you can't always not, you know, you know, knock that out of the park. But I mean, I think ultimately you're looking for groups that um, you can spend a lot of time with and kind of, you know, deepen the relationship with, whether that's maybe even seeing some co-invest or whatnot. I mean, you, that's, that's the longer term goal. So you focus on VC, yeah. early stage and late stage growth equity, buyout yeah. and real estate assets. Is yes, that correct? That's correct. So that's a lot of things to cover. I'd love to hear how you think about it from a single seat, single perspective across all those different types of investments. Right. No, it's definitely, it's definitely interesting. You know, your brain's kind of uh, moving in a lot of different directions. And is that U.S. only? No, we have a global portfolio. Okay, so that's Um, also global. Although I'd say, you know, in the last five plus years, I've kind of split our private equity portfolio with a colleague that does more of the sourcing globally for us. So that's how we kind of split it up. I mean, we, we work as a group overall. So I think that's part of what the role of our team is, is to kind of assess relative value across multiple asset classes and try to kind of find the best ideas within those, you know, within those pockets. You know, we have a asset allocation that we're generally trying to kind of follow. I mean, I think we have some ability to kind of manage around that plus or minus, but in general, you know, our, our board, our investment committee sets our asset allocation and we, we're trying to kind of, you know, find the best opportunities within that construct. But yeah, I mean, I, look, so why, I think, does, why does the board do that? Well, see, our CIO, our CIO and our investment committee do that. So uh, we have a subcommittee of our board of trustees made up of, you know, very seasoned investment people that have, you know, different, you know, types of experience. Some have real estate experience, some have energy experience, some have, you know, private equity experience or or public markets experience. And, you know, one one of the things our CIO has done a really nice job of is is basically building some diversification of mindset into that board. Um, And so they get together every so so often. Usually it's once a year. We we kind of, she reviews that. I mean, we had, we help her, you know, with data that supports what she then goes to discuss yep. with them, but they ultimately, they ultimately have an ability to kind of influence, you know, what that should be. Now we're not, you know, dynamically changing that on a year over year basis. I mean, and they're roughly saying, okay, I'm just making this up, but 30% should be in public equities and 20% should be in real estate. I'm, I'm just yeah, making those I mean, things up. Yeah. And then they, they come back and you kind of execute against those rough Broadly right, right. Yeah. That's that's essentially what we're doing. I mean, I think you know a lot of endowments our size, the billion plus. I mean, a lot of this is sort of predicated on this sort of Swenson book and the right. endowment model and sort of you know heavy alternatives exposure and trying to kind of build a global portfolio. You know, I think that's sort of a baseline, and then there are variations that people kind of take from that. You know, kind of overall mindset. Um, so comparing real estate to venture, let's say, because those are two areas yeah. of focus for you. What would you, at a very high level, describe as maybe similarities sure. when you're making investment decisions, and things that are just totally different about those two? Sure. So similar to start with similarities. Look, I mean, I think a lot of private investing, where you're getting into sort of a longer term investing, whether it's a startup company or real estate investment, you're really trying to assess the manager's ability to kind of add value to the asset, right? So if you think about like a venture investment, 
Are you helping the, the founder, you know, recruit talent, evaluate its go-to-market strategy, help with its sort of, you know, accessing customers? Those are all demonstrated things that, a, that an investor can do to add value to the company yeah. and build equity value. On the real estate side, same, I'm really kind of trying to assess the same thing on some level, right? Do you have a good, you know, property management internal function? Can you help with leasing? Can you help make, uh, you know, understand market conditions in, at, at the asset level? If you're doing a lot of redevelopment, sort of redesigning the office space, more open floor plan or something like that. Again, that's something that the investor hmm. either then internally can do or has some capability to kind of be able to influence that and create hmm. value to the asset. So I think that that concept of operational value add hmm. applies across multiple strategies, and it's particularly relevant on the private side, right? Because you're fundamentally taking a longer term view and trying to kind of influence, um, you know, influence the asset in some in some you know demonstrated way. You know, in terms of things that are different, you know, I, you know, you think about the, it's really sort of the holding period and, and how you generate your turns are probably different across some of these strategies. So if you think about, again, you know, go back to VC, it's a much, you know, holding periods have gotten longer, right? You're, you're probably holding some of these assets, certainly five plus years, maybe even 10 years. You're trying to kind of build that equity value over a very long period of time. How you value the asset over that time period kind of is subjective. So, you know, understanding that you're going to get a much more back-ended return as an investor is something you have to plan for, right? And you have to kind of model that out and understand that impact on cash flow and your asset allocation and, and whatever else. You know, on the real estate side, you know, generally there's there's a shorter hold period. You know, you may be generating some interim cash flow off the asset, you know, there's probably less of a, you know, outsized upside outcome. I mean, you're probably a little bit more range bound in the types of returns you can expect from some of those type of assets. So those are, that's, those are some of the differences, you know, who the buyers are and what's impacting them. Like some of these strategies are a little bit more dependent on, you know, the state of financing markets, for example. Like, I mean, when you think about real estate, highly dependent on, you know, how buyers can access financing markets and are there, you know, differences there between what's going on in the public IPO markets, for example. So those are some of the, some of the differences. I mean, I think those are the, those are probably the two of the primary things that I look at as I compare, compare the two, the two types of strategies. So. And when you think about, so when you think about real estate managers, yes, I'm just curious, like within that strategy, like where are some managers that you think are particular compelling? Right. Maybe an example or two yeah, sure. across the across the US just because we haven't talked that much about it. Well, our real estate portfolio, again, when I joined, we had no real assets exposure, kind right. of building that from scratch. I think we a couple things we noted as we were kind of landscaping the market. We we've built the portfolio with a heavy emphasis on, on value add, which I just described. And, and to go more granular, granular on that, I mean, real estate is really a local business. Right. So we really like groups that either have a asset type specialty. So if you think about the core asset types in real estate, you've got multifamily, you've got industrial real estate, you've got office. Um, you, you know, you, those are sort of the core types of assets that institutional investors kind of invest in. And you've got certain groups that specialize in each of those mm -hmm. asset types could be also, there's also some subspecialties around hotels or student housing or, or stuff like that. We like groups that have that kind of specialty. So, mm -hmm. you know, because I, we think again, going back to this concept of the value add, 
if you really are specialized in a certain asset type, you have an ability to kind of really add that value at a level that maybe a more generalist investor can't do or struggles with. You know, I think the other part of it is we like sort of some regional focus, again, because I think there's a sourcing advantage when you really know not just a local market, but the sub markets well. So if you think about, you know, a market like Boston, there's, you know, there's investing in Boston, but then there's investing in the Seaport District in Boston or there's investing in Cambridge, like really understanding that local knowledge is kind of critical to success in kind of real estate investing. How much do you look at their process? I imagine there's in real estate, particularly compared to maybe very early stage venture. Right. I would imagine there's more specific processes and. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly a little bit more structure to kind of how they're going about it. I mean, there's a lot more modeling to my point about cash flow and understanding the financing markets. There's probably a lot more depth into kind of, okay, you know, how are we going to finance this? A little bit more number centric in terms of the longer term potential of what we can do with an asset. And are you Uh, looking at those through a diligence process? Yeah, we'll get that. We'll get some of that in in our diligence work. I mean, I'm not going to say we're looking at every asset in their portfolio that way, but certainly we're trying to kind of evaluate the process. Like, okay, what are you doing? How are you forecasting out, you know, your rents and, and sort of your expectations around exit, you know, cap rates and stuff like that. That's all definitely part of something you're digging into uh, on the diligence front. You know, how do managers have a, in the real estate business, like how, how do they have a sourcing advantage? You know, it's, it really comes down to, um, it, it really comes down to how long they've been operating in a certain mm-hmm. market, I would say. Um, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you some examples. Um, you know, we're an investor with a group in Boston called Cabot Properties. They do just industrial real estate. They actually have a little bit more of a national footprint, but they definitely started up in, in the Boston area, New England. You know, they've been doing this a very long time. At one point, they were a public read, and then they then they kind of moved over to the private side. You know, they've got deep relationships with a lot of the leasing brokers. So sometimes they see off-market deal flow. Um, you know, they've got teams that are kind of regionally placed in different areas where they just are kind of on top of the market nonstop. Again, this is something you can mm-hmm. kind of diligence. Like what do you have a specific strategy around sourcing yeah. and how are you going about it? How are you incentivizing, you know, people to kind of, you know, show you deal flow. Um, so it's, it's sort of that. And then you, know, you also, and are just, they ever, are, can you ever win a deal outside of price in the real estate business? Like I figured maybe they see it early, but then 10 other people see it and it's always going to come down to. Yeah. Price. I mean, it depends occasionally. I mean, look, there's, there's less and less inefficiency in, in almost all markets today. If yeah. I think back over the 15 years, certainly I mean, for early it, stage venture, everything. Yeah. I mean, it's like every, there's just a lot of capital out there. It's gotten more efficient. Um, it's hard to compete on, you know, I think you have to have a differentiated angle about what you're going to do to an asset. That, you know, and this is where some people get in trouble. Some people think they can do more than they can and they Mm -hmm. pay more and then they ultimately can't. And then the returns don't come in as expected. You know, I think with real estate, a lot of what you find is, you know, some investors that is particularly in the value add segment, you know, evaluate real estate asset and say, oh, I can do something very different with this asset than the current use. And maybe Mm -hmm. different. like you see a lot of different expectations or plans for an asset in real estate. Um, In other words... Potentially, the outcome could be different than right. what you would typically put in the model. Yeah. 
And, you know, look, I'll give you an example. So we have one of our real estate managers just bought the old Boston Globe sort of headquarters mm-hmm. where they, you know, both had the, the the newsroom, but also had all the big printing presses. And so they're going to go redevelop that asset into like pretty cool mixed used office space. And we'll see. It's sort of like it's on the it's on the it's not in the primary location in Boston, but it's sort of, you know, it's in that sort of path of progress. It's close to public transportation. It's definitely an area that's kind of up and coming, you know, that there's risk there, but there's also return potential there. Right. So that's the kind of thing where I think someone looked at that. Some investors maybe looked at that. Ah, that's too much heavy lift, lifting. I don't know what I can do with that. I'm betting on, right. you know, I'm betting on the office market continuing to expand down here. Do I want to take that bet? Again, it's it's sort of can you do you have confidence in your mm. ability to execute? Do you have you know? I think other things come in. You know, and do something maybe more more creative, more than, creative than the next person. Yeah, I mean, there's also you know, look, real estate when you when you talk about hard assets like that, there's always some sort of political angle too. Do you have an ability to get approvals mm. through the city? Right. You, you know, and and that's all part of the game too. Um, so. You know, that's another thing you're trying to assess the skill of the manager or the relationships of the manager to get things done at that level. Many universities are themselves large real estate that's asset true. holders, correct? Yes, I mean, does, does Tufts itself has its we own do. portfolio? And how do you think about that as a part of the larger real estate portfolio? We do, although we don't really manage that specifically through our okay. office. Um, okay. So we've got our own sort of real estate arm that kind of focuses primarily a- around the main campus at Tufts, trying to kind of, you know, st- as the university grows, there's more students, there's more, what, what do we need to do to accommodate, you know, the campus environment? You know, that's their kind of focus. So there's a little bit more you know, look, they're not looking to lose money on those investments, but they're also looking at it probably from more of a strategic, you know, how is this going to enhance the value of the campus environment, not necessarily driving return. I think that was really the logic of why it wasn't a big piece of hmm. the endowment portfolio per se. And now, presumably those assets they're holding basically forever. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. I think you're basically strategically picking up pieces that, okay, this is sort of the growth of the campus as we look at it over a very long period of time. I mean, there are other groups. I mean, MIT has done an amazing job with their real estate arm, you know, similar thing. I mean, they're actually a little bit more integrated into their investment office, Mm. but, you know, they've, you know, they've done an amazing job because where they're located, that whole, you know, Cambridge, Kendall Square, you know, the value of all that Right. Real estate has just exploded over the right. last decade plus, um, and they've kind of done a good job of being strategic. And you know, how do you monetize this? And how do we, you know how do we also tie it into what you know the the university's trying or the institute's trying to do? Um, Who does manage that at Tufts? Uh, it's a you know I don't actually have as close a relationship as I should there. Hmm. Um, it, you know, it's it's basically a, a separate team that's okay. kind of uh, that's on campus. So. Are there other assets like that that the university owns that aren't necessarily a part of the investment office endowment? There, there are a couple. So we, there's a technology transfer office right. at, at Tufts, and right. most universities have this. Yep. And this is again, there's variations around how close the endowment is tied into you know the tech transfer process. Like some schools, it's a little more tightly controlled, like MIT and right. Stanford and right. places like that. You know, I have a good relationship with tech transfer, but they definitely invest in some things directly that we're not, you know, directly involved with. Um, yeah. And that know, goes through, I guess, maybe just their annual budget. Yeah. It comes off the balance sheet or, yeah, yeah there's, there's some, 
What percentage of the endowment does go into the annual budget every year? Yeah, it's a little over 5%. Okay. So, yeah, so we're basically trying to get, we're trying to get, um, you know, returns north of that, right? We're trying right. to get that plus inflation long-term. So right. eight plus percent returns. I mean, that's right. really our baseline of what we're trying to kind of generate. As you think about the years to come, yeah. how do you think the priorities or you think about the next 15 years right. for Tufts now that you have a professionalized investment office? Like, how do you think about the next 15 years compared to the last 15 right. years? You know, I think a couple of things. One, I would say is we're really looking to try to deepen our relationships with our managers so we can become closer to the assets that we own. Not necessarily trying to impact the manager's decisions on the assets, but just being able, trying to become even more value add as an investor to our managers, um, if we can. And that, again, that can take, you know, different forms, you know, helping them make introductions to other investors or, you know, being helpful on a real estate decision that we maybe have some insight into. You, you know, if I think about some of the the better LPs out there. They're the ones that are trying to always proactively add value to the situation by, you know, using information that they have. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you think about like on the venture side, you know, there's some fund of funds out there that are really good at, you know, helping their relationships sort of, um, you know, just understand private valuations and how many companies are in a certain space and, you know, that type of thing. Um, so that's definitely a goal of ours is to deepen the relationship with our existing managers um, you know, maybe start to explore doing more direct investing. We've done some of that mm -hmm. um, in know, companies, in companies um, to the extent where, you know, can continue to build that capability and, and you know, have some, you know, flexibility there. I think that's an important longer term goal as, as we kind of grow. Where have you done that in the past? We've done that principally. We've done a little bit in our real assets portfolio okay. um, alongside some of our existing GP relationships there. And then we also at Tufts have this side sleeve in um, sort of impact investing. Um, so we've done some direct investing through that um, through that program. Um, and I think I think that's interesting. I mean, I think that's that continues to be an area that's going to attract more capital longer term. Um, I think it's important that it attracts more capital longer term. And and it, I we continue to see a sort of bleed over of, of the impact investing into the mainstream, right? Yeah. And that's only going to increase. Yeah. And so I think, you know, we, because we've been doing it for a while, I think we've got some, you know, knowledge to, you know, impart or some information advantage there that maybe some others don't. And we'd like to try to capitalize on that. Real estate managers, they charge two and 20, by the way. Uh, a little bit less. Usually it's sort less. of one and a half, but yeah, okay. they, they still get it. It's, it's, it's a similar structure, maybe a little bit lower on the fee, although they generate more some asset level fees sometimes. I right. Mean, you know, sometimes they right. charge a property management fee or something right. like that. So, so you, you mentioned that you were thinking about broadening exposure potentially to maybe seed an earlier stage yes. venture as a subclass within yeah. the venture portfolio. How and why do you think about that? And yeah. I'm curious to hear a little bit about the plan there. Yeah, sure. Look, I think there's been, there are some changes going on in the venture ecosystems broadly. And I think one of the things we've picked up on is how, you know, A, companies are getting a lot more capital efficient, right? So their days of needing, you know, 20, 30, $40 million worth of capital to kind of get a company, you know, to, to a certain level aren't really there. Some companies need that money, but not all companies. 
So they're raising it regardless. They're raising it regardless. Um, (laughs) But that's, again, I think that's, you know, we'll see how that all shakes out. Right. Um, But I think a couple of things we're, we're trying to kind of, A, it's tying into our thesis around wanting to identify next generation and groups that we can grow with over time. Right. So managers, managers, newer, newer funds, exactly. Newer funds. We, we find that attractive. It's higher risk potentially, but it's attractive. You know, we also feel that, you know, valuations at sort of the seed and early stage are on a relative basis have not kind of gotten as out of control. Right. Um, So we feel like we'd rather kind of play down at that segment of the market than try to kind of go chase these later stage, you know, uh, investments that have just gotten really aggressive and are really become pretty much dependent on an IPO exit. Um, Mm -hmm. Like most of these companies are really now pigeonholed into, okay, I've got to grow into this valuation. And really my only exit is to kind of take this thing public Mm. at some point. Um, And some of them will be successful. I mean, we've had a pretty interesting, you know, first half of the year here with, with a number of IPOs that have, that have come out and looks like, you know, public investors are are kind of clamoring for some of the stuff. So, you know, I'm not saying you can't make returns there. I just think it's a little bit more of a momentum game and, and we, we like, the flexibility to kind of both be able to have the option value to you know have a company that could go public but also not be so out of whack from a valuation perspective that the MA exit doesn't really come into play right mm-hmm. um so that so seed and early still allows you to do that now you got to be careful like not all the seed and early managers are navigating it the way i think we we want to see them navigate it but i think that's that's definitely part of the thesis i would say the other part of it is you know, the seed and early investors, if you look back over time and, you know, what people get excited about in venture capital is is those returns of the early stage investments, right? I mean, if you, you know, everyone goes into venture because over long periods of time, you see these outsized returns. But if you really break down the numbers, the last 10 years that, you know, you actually have seen that same performance out of growth equity, you know, it goes right. back to like, all right, how did you make venture returns? And it was really kind of, C, I don't want to necessarily say C, but Series A investing in sort of the mid 90s. You know, that was where the, a lot of the outperformance came. And that was, you know, funds that were sub five, you know, certainly sub 500 million, in some cases sub 200 million, yep. you know, doing much smaller investments and just yep. getting meaningful ownership. You know, I think also as I've evaluated a number of seed managers, you know, the connection they're able to make with the founders is critical. And and also, as you know, the founder then has options to finance their business. You're you're the one that's at the you know, you're their right hand man to some extent. Yep. Right. And yep. I think, you know, looking at it from our perspective, as we see how hard it is to get into funds, it's getting that hard for the most successful companies that ultimately show progress. There's more capital out there than they need. So then it becomes, all right, who's got the preferred situation to take their pro rata or even get a super pro rata in certain cases. And, you know, who's going to maintain that ownership interest over a longer period of time. And I think the earlier you are in that conversation, the better off you are. Um, yep. And that, that's, you know, we'll see. I mean, I, like I, we, we can see that this is definitely a, a riskier segment of the market primarily because you've got, you know, some firm risk, right? I mean, a lot of these groups are, you know, starting out for the first time, maybe managing, you know, capital for the first time, you know, so we try to balance that out. We've definitely done a couple first time funds, but I would say the sweet spot is actually to come in on a fund too, after they've already kind of, you know, maybe 
done one portfolio, had a couple lessons learned from that. And then now they're kind of taking it to the next level. And, and that's kind of where we've been focused. So. How do you run the diligence process with an early stage firm yeah. where you've maybe only known them for a year And maybe, I mean, even if they have a fun one, they've built a portfolio and they maybe learned a couple lessons, but it's still probably very difficult to actually evaluate on any sort of return. So what are the things that get you over the line? Yeah. A couple things. So how, how they're thinking about longer term building the firm is the Mm -hmm. thing we focus in on. All right. Have you thought about where you want to be, you know, three, four, 10 years from now? Um, and, and not everyone has an answer to that. Some people haven't thought about it, which is a little bit of a red flag for us. Others have like, all right, here's where we think this is going. And it doesn't even have to be that we're going to grow. Like, I actually think we're going to still be in the same range. We're going to have two partners and here's why, like if they can articulate to us why strategically they're going to, they're going to be on a certain path. That's interesting to us. Is it okay to say like, so we, we sometimes talk about this a little bit and we think about okay, there is a universe in which we see maybe path A. Right. And there's a universe that we see path B. And both of those are very specific and for specific reasons. Yeah. But in many ways, because we are such a young firm, we do potentially see a couple paths. Sure. We can articulate and describe them. Yeah, I think that's fine. I mean, look, I mean, you have to be able to you have to be able to respond to market conditions, right? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day. And I think that's perfectly reasonable to be, as long as you can articulate, all right, here's, if, if the market kind of shifts this way, we would do this for these reasons. And, 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 and likewise, um, so you don't necessarily need to, to hear, okay, this is the path we're going down this path. No, actually, I prefer not to hear, like I'm set. So set in my thinking that this is the only way it can play out. But, you know, that said, I think there are certain things I'm looking for that are kind of universal to success, right? I think one of the big problems, venture, not even just venture, but, you know, managers that are good at making deals and maybe have done a good deal or two or connected with a founder, they then need to translate that into fund performance, right? And there's a there's a difference there in terms of what's going to drive mm. Uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, get into venture where they go, all I need is to find the next great idea and the rest of the things will take care of themselves. What what we've kind of found is it's it's actually to drive fund level performance is actually very different than just getting into one or two good deals, right? right? Particularly it's, over multiple funds. It's particularly right. over multiple funds. Right. So I, I really focus in on, okay, you know, how many companies do you think you need to be in to, to drive your fund level performance at this fund size? You, you know, what pace of investing are you going to pursue? Do you, you know, are you going to be a little bit more time diversified here and kind of play this out over a three to four year period? Or are you trying to invest this entire fund in 18 months? Right. Like those are things that we're really focused in on. And, and the groups that we find interesting have good answers to those. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm, I'm doing diligence on, on a fund right now and they've done this, you know, pretty detailed model as to, okay, we're going to do 20, 25 companies. And, you know, here's how we see the, you know, probability matrix happening. Like we think we can get a couple that'll generate this and, you know, we'll have, you know, seven or eight write-offs and, you know, it's not going to turn out exactly that way, but they're thinking about it in a strategic way that I think is interesting and, and is more durable from just like, I'm going to find the next great, you know, stuff in crypto or, you know, it's sort of like, they're actually thinking about it from a business perspective rather than a deal perspective. Mm -hmm. You've talked about, uh, valuation 
creep a little bit right. across venture, across real estate. It seems like it's essentially across every asset right. today. So I'm curious how you think about the current environment. Yeah, I mean, look, everything everything looks pretty, you know, fully priced right now for right. to perfection, right? I mean, I think again, you know, if you can if you can get in early on certain things that are in interesting segments and you can kind of grow and add operational value that that kind of allows you to kind of take a, a sea change or, or take a jump up in in value, that that's places where we want to play, but we're pretty cautious right now. Like I think we're trying to be fairly right, you know, fairly cycle focused um it's hard how do you do that you know again i think it goes down to pacing right so you know not just evaluating the managers on how they're pacing their under underlying but also how we're pacing our kind of vintage year exposure i think that's important and it's hard because you know the last two years you know i would say the majority of our private portfolio came back to market. And right. And you can't really pace that. Like if Excel, for example, I'm comes back, you're going right. to says, Hey, we're going to do a new fund. You can't like skip right. that fund. Exactly. Is that right? Pretty much. I would yeah. say, I mean, in some cases it, it, it's, it's manager specific, but I would say that's generally true. I think it's hard to kind of walk away from your better relationships and sit right. out of the cycle and get back. I, right. It, sometimes you can get back in, right. but, but it, right now right. there's, there's just more demand then there is there are slots, so right. you got to be very right. sensitive to that. So how do you become more cautious? Is yeah. that at maybe the like higher portfolio level where you just keep more cash in the portfolio, or I mean, how do you how do you do that where your managers are not necessarily becoming more cautious? Yeah, and do you advise your managers to become more cautious if that's your objective as yeah, well? Yeah, I, look, I I do advise the managers to be focused on what's going to drive fund level performance. Like I talked about earlier. So like, if I see a manager getting real aggressive on their pacing, I'll push back and be like, why, you know, like, you know, why do you need to, right. you know, invest so quickly? Right? right. What's the, what's the rush here? And it's hard, right? Cause in a deal environment where there's a lot of activity, a lot of stuff, you know, trading or investments that are open, it's hard not to get sucked into that, you know, enthusiasm and excitement. Mm-hmm. But I think the better managers are able to kind of take, step back. I mean, the, one of the big challenges right now is like you, you said, we're, we're 10 years into what is a, you know, has really been a pretty, you know, rosy period for investing. And, you know, a lot of, particularly some of these seed and early venture guys, or, you know, even a lot of these spin out groups from established, they, they haven't seen a down cycle at this point. Yeah. Right. I mean, so it's like, okay, yeah. there is likely to be one here in yeah. the next, I, I can't tell you when it's going to be, if it's going to be this year or in five years, but you know, history tells you that you're going to see a down cycle and you got to be prepared for that. And, I, and you're never going to be fully prepared. Like, I don't believe in like, all right, try to time the market and we're going to be all in cash. And then we're going to, you just can't do that with these long-term pools yeah. of capital where you're locking up for 10 yeah. years. But, you know, you can be mindful of pacing. You can be mindful of, you know, I think the other thing we're trying to do is really, you know, focusing on fees as well. Like, okay, how, how much are we paying for, you know, assets that we're, you know, locking up for long periods of time? Mm-hmm. You've seen a big push there from, mm-hmm. you know, from larger investors to kind of push back on some of the fees that are, yep. that are going on. Now, again, there's a fine line there as well. Like, I'm not trying to kind of starve the manager. I want them investing in their business. Yep. But I don't want them getting just fat and happy off the fee, right? Yeah. I mean, that, there's a balance there you're yeah. trying to strike. And I guess to, so to a certain degree, your your direct investment program can, I mean, yeah, one, one in theory, do you think about it that way or not really? Like to a certain degree, if you blend that in, 
in theory, it's like blending the fees lower without necessarily. Yeah, I, I think yeah. I mean, I, I don't necessarily view that as the primary motivation. I sure that's a benefit that you could get by doing that. Again, the co-investing has been a relatively small piece of what we've been doing to date, and. If we do more of it, our primary goal is to kind of just deepen the relationship with the manager and learn more about, you know, get deeper into what we own rather than I'm driving the fee down to, you know, much lower. Level. What has you most excited in the in the years to come? Maybe not just with venture or real estate, but also across the portfolio or the university. Look, I think it's a dynamic, you know, a dynamic time to kind of be you know, active in the markets. It's hard, you know, it's, it's expensive, but I, I do think there's just a lot of interesting change going on. Um, I, we, you know, we talked about sort of the impact investing stuff. I think there's some real exciting stuff on the horizon there. You know, I think there's really interesting ways technology's changing, you know, the energy mix. Like I think alternative energy uh, investments are, are getting increasingly yeah. exciting. You know, I mentioned the life science, you know, stuff earlier. I think that's, that's another area that, continues to be exciting. It ties into some of the stuff the university's doing. You know, we, for example, we've got a, an interesting incubator space on campus where we've kind of, um, you know, partnered with this group called Lab Central, where we're trying to incubate some life science technologies, um, out of that space. So I think that's all very interesting and exciting. You know, again, I, I think the tie into, to global, um, you know, global investing is interesting as well. Like I think we've got a, a developing uh, portfolio in Asia that we think is is interesting and has a longer term potential. So th- those are all you know those are all exciting things. I mean, I think the even the whole concept of how higher ed is going to evolve over the next yeah. couple of years is pretty interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, as a university, you know, I think Tufts is in a very privileged position that we've got a great you know national profile and you know it's a highly selective school and we're attracting really high quality students but there's definitely for some of these smaller colleges there's going to be you know a pretty you know tough shakeout in terms of how the finances work and yeah. what does that mean for the people that are that have brands and are, and are left standing right i think it's it's an interesting time um Paul, thank you so much for doing this with us. We really appreciate it. Excited to follow along as you evolve the endowment years yeah. to come. Pleasure to be here and uh, appreciate the time. Thanks so much. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams in the trenches from day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank, SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with the hashtag OpenLP. Thank you.